I want to talk to you today about love and hate. Jesus Christ of Nazareth gave his name to what is called the Christian religion. He came into a religious community that was dominated by the Pharisees who were the legal successors and heirs to Moses' religion. Jesus himself acknowledged that the Pharisees sat in Moses' seat. I hasten to point out that when God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world, he did not send him to become a Pharisee. Jesus was not inducted into the religion of the Pharisees. I hasten to point out that when God sent his own son, Jesus Christ, into the world, he did not send him to become a Pharisee. Jesus was not inducted into the religion of the Pharisees. He was not required to be baptized by the Pharisee religion. He was not required to become a member of their synagogue or of their church. He was not required to go to their seminaries or to their religious educational institutions. Jesus Christ, as it were, just came suddenly on the scene, a mature young man of 30 years of age, and began to preach what is called the gospel of the kingdom of God, and ran headlong into controversy almost immediately with the religion of the Pharisees. They, number one, sat in Moses' seat. They had the Torah, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the writings of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Psalms, all of it. They had all the ceremony of religion, the temple, and between them and the Sadducees, they dominated the religious community of the land of Palestine during that time. To them, said Jesus Christ, belonged even such things as the sacred calendar. They had charge, and they were authoritatively the logical and the natural, fleshly, physical successors to Moses. They had not usurped that job. They had not usurped the seat in which they sat. They had grown into it over the many, many years. They had been appointed to that seat, and it was quite legitimate. They were known for exercising strong autocratic control over the local synagogue. They were known as being authoritative, as being exclusivist, and they were an elite religious fraternity. They used shunning. Putting out those who disagreed with them was commonplace among the Pharisees because they were an elite core of innermost believers, all of whom marched to the same tune, all of them in step, all of them obedient, none of them ever getting away with the slightest little nuance of deviation in human tastes and appetites, such as prescribed methods of dress, a certain method or mode of hair gear or headgear, whether or not women should be attired in a certain way to enter into the synagogue was all carefully laid down. The Pharisees had the Talmud and the religion of Moses, which had been added to by the scholars of the Jewish community for many, many centuries until you probably would have had to have a, a, an ox cart or a camel caravan to lug all the documentation to which they could refer to try to settle some fine point of the law if it came up in disagreement. There were so many intricacies of human behavior covered in the Talmud that it literally took doctors of the Talmud, educated people who had done nothing but study the Talmud most of their lives, to be able to interpret these human actions and to hand down a decision to people. I want you to see the way that 
came to affect a local congregation by turning to the book of John, and let's begin in the ninth chapter, a very instructive part of the Bible, in the ninth chapter of the book of John, that shows us a little bit about life in the local synagogue. Jesus Christ of Nazareth came into that country and began to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, and his message was, Repent and believe the gospel. He also, in order to demonstrate his authority, to demonstrate the fact that he came from God, that he had credentials which were actually greater credentials than those of the Pharisees, he was able to perform divine miracles, signs, and wonders. He was able, because of his desire to help people, to heal individuals who were deaf, dumb, or blind. He was able to cast out demoniacs or demons and cause demoniacs to become sane and of sound mind. Oftentimes that brought about a great reaction. A large crowd would gather. The one who had been the recipient of the healing would rush off to tell someone to praise God, to go embrace his family, to go see his friends, say, what a wonderful thing happened to me. A crowd would gather and great publicity, a great sensational amount of publicity would result from a a healing or a great miracle that Jesus would perform. Perhaps Jesus had known where this blind man was, but it says in verse 1 of chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. This man was obviously a beggar. He was probably up in his 20s or 30s, but he had been there for years, sitting on a pallet, his blind orbs, sightless, staring up at nothing in the sky, and his hand out, begging for alms of the passers-by. Well, the disciples were curious because they always wanted to know about the punishments for sin. They, perhaps like the Pharisees, believed that oftentimes any affliction, a loss of life, a disease, or some infirmity is the result of something you did that is bad, and God came along and punished you, and that what you see in the form of the loss of a loved one, or an affliction, a disease, a disfigurement, something ugly on your face, a twisted foot, a withered or a shrunken hand or a limb, is because God is punishing you. That was the pharisaical approach about human tragedy. So they wanted to know, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither. Neither has this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. And then he said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he thus spoke, he did something very strange. He made a clay of saliva. He anointed the eyes of the blind man. And you know, clay, as it dries, will actually cause the drawing action. It doesn't say how thick it was or how much of it, but I take that there was quite a little bit. If you think that that was sort of an unclean thing to do, you better think again, because chemically, you can absolutely prove that human saliva... Of course, I won't go into all of that. It would be very embarrassing, for pity's sake. You all know about kissing your girlfriend or your husband, but there was nothing either uh, clinically unclean or chemically wrong with what he did. It was moisture from the mouth of the one who was the very Son of God. He made a clay. That clay, I think, affixed itself probably to thick cataracts. And because of a combination of the drawing action of the clay and the washing of the clay once it had hardened in the pool called Siloam, It took a miracle to remove it. I do not believe it was merely just uh, a kind of a strange medicine that Jesus was practicing because this was a divine miracle from God. But it does seem to say that both were at work here. 
that Jesus knew something of what you might call folk medicine almost. They did know of poultices and herbs. They knew about binding up wounds. And I remind you that one of the disciples of Jesus Christ was Luke, the physician. Well, Jesus made clay and anointed his eyes and told him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. Wonderful. A man who had been blind from his birth now saw. And the neighbors, though that had, those that had before had seen that he was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? And some said, Well, this is he. And others said, Well, it's like him. But they couldn't believe it was him because suddenly he was seeing. And he said, I am he. Therefore they said unto him, Well, how were your eyes restored? And he told them about it. A man called Jesus anointed my eyes. He made clay. He sent me to the pool of Siloam. And I went and washed and I received sight. And they said, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. So, to get the really understanding, like a lot of us would do, they thought, I've got to get an official opinion here. I've got to go to my leader. I need some spiritual counseling. I never heard of a thing like this before. So they said, Let's go talk to the Pharisees about this. They brought him to the Pharisees that before time was blind. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. That's interesting, isn't it? It does not say the Pharisees rejoiced. It does not say that anyone rejoiced. They were merely curious. And the fact that it was the Sabbath day begins to come into play and appears to be important in the narrative. He said again, he repeated it, he put clay upon my eyes, I washed and I do see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, utterly ignoring the fabulous miracle that had occurred, not thinking humanly, here is a man who has never yet seen a tree or a building, a sunrise or a sunset, doesn't understand color. He understands the language, but if people told him such and such is brown or white or gray or blue or black or green or in between, he had nothing with which to educate his mind. They could probably tell him now, what you are seeing is black because you see nothing, but just a void. And they might have tried to explain to him what something looked like probably with his hands, and most blind people are quite adept at this, as you know, even to the point of reading Braille and of having a very delicate touch, he would feel the faces of his parents. He would feel certain things. He was very probably acutely attuned to certain sounds so that he could walk along with his cane and he could actually hear when he was passing an intersection or coming to a particular part of the street or find his way about the city to take his pallet and sit there and beg. But only if you were to sit there in your seat and close your eyes tightly and hold them that way for five minutes and then maybe get up, turn around three times and find your way out of the room or walk from here to your car. Or if you're living at home and you're hearing this on a tape, simply get up from where you are and try to find your way to the bathroom. Without ever opening your eyes, could you ever begin to feel a little bit of empathy for the blind man? And then, if you could understand, if it had been your son or your daughter, someone you loved, and this person had been healed, how would you feel? What would you be going through? What would you be experiencing? What kind of joy and happiness and delight would there have been in the family over such a great and a wonderful miracle? But they questioned him, and some Pharisee pulled himself up to his full pompous height and said, This man is not of God. Well, now, he had the ears of the people, and he could make such a statement. The Pharisee, remember, sat in Moses' seat. Think about it. Here was a man who was an official. The people had no knowledge whether or not Jesus was of God or of the devil or of himself because they were not personally acquainted. 
They had no record. They had not seen or listened. They had not seen the fruits of the proof over years. This was only hearsay. But since the hearsay came from an official source, naturally some of the people had to believe the statement. This man is not of God because he keeps not the Sabbath day. But others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. And they said then to the blind man, now, you claim he opened your eyes, is that right? Well, what do you say about him? What's your opinion of him? And the blind man said, he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind. Now they began to say, well, we'll find a way out of this. This is a hoax. The man is a, is a suborned witness. He's a, he's a put-up job. This man, Jesus, paid him to come and say this. He wasn't really blind at all. And they began to circulate that idea and buzz and gossip and talk among themselves. And so they called the parents. Well, the parents were members. The parents were members of the local synagogue. And when members of the local synagogue got called in before the Pharisees, they were nervous. They were afraid. They were really now very alert. They wondered, what is this all about? We're being called in by our minister. We're on the hot seat. The spotlight is on us, and we're going to be grilled here and asked some questions. Now, you see, Ananias and Sapphira had not died yet because Christ had not yet been crucified, had not yet been resurrected, the New Testament church had not yet begun, and the great pooling of resources of which we know, and the event that is covered in the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, of a case where a couple of people conspired to keep back a portion of it, and yet to pretend to be great spiritually uh, beneficent, giving, sharing people, and kept back a portion, and God, through a miracle, caused both of those people, the husband and the wife, to die. In the New Testament period of time, not just one church, but many, have used the story of Ananias and Sapphira to a very great degree, almost exactly like the Catholic inquisitors during the Spanish Inquisition would use similar arguments and used that very story of Ananias and Sapphira in grilling and questioning people. It's one thing to go take a polygraph. It's one thing to be given a shot of sodium pentothal. It's one thing to be grilled by the police or a judge and to be put on oath and be told anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. It is quite another thing to say, if you lie to me, you're going to go to hell. And that's what the Catholics said. Or, in New Testament parlance, in other churches' language, if you lie to me, if you withhold anything, you will go into a lake of fire and I will put you out of the church. You're facing not just being blackballed, not just loss of reputation. You're facing not loss of salary. You're facing nothing even so severe in that sense of the word in the mundane term as maybe a rash or a common cold. Oh no, you're facing the blackness of darkness of nothingness for all eternity. You're facing the loss of salvation, the loss of eternal life if you lie to these people. In the Jewish synagogue, the Pharisees had similar power. They controlled the people in their congregation. These parents were tremulous. They wondered, what was this about? And they asked them, saying, verse 19 of John 9, Is this your son, whom was born blind, according to you? Well, then how, then, does he now see? Now, they hadn't even seen their son yet. Their son is there. They're called into an official building, perhaps a room off of one of the large synagogues, maybe a part of the temple, we don't know. 
A group of people, by this time it could have been 30, 40, or 100, are standing about. When the parents are brought in, trembling, suddenly they see their boy. The last they saw him, he picked up his little pallet and went down the street as he did, tapping his cane to sit and to beg for money all day long. But they looked at him, and what was their reaction? Well, the normal reaction would have been a cry of joy from the mother, perhaps constricted throat and a pumping of the heart and a, a thrill of exaltation in the chest of the father. The mother would have let a piteous little cry come out of her mouth and would have grabbed the son and tears of joy would have been there. She would have hugged him and kissed him. And How did it happen? It's marvelous. I'm your mother. You are? He would have reached out with his hands because he wouldn't have known. And only when with his eyes seeing and his fingers touching that face and holding his mother would he realize, it's mom. I can hear her voice, but now I see her for the first time in my life. He would have hugged her. You've got to imagine the scene in human terms. The father would have been standing there grabbing his son around the shoulders, banging him on the back. I'm your dad. But that wasn't allowed. The normal expression of that joy was not allowed because they were standing in front of the Pharisees and something great had happened. And the Pharisees had an official explanation for it. So... His parents said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Do you believe the Bible? Do people sitting in this room, people hearing this tape, believe the Bible? Do you believe Almighty God is in heaven? Do you believe this is the Word of God? Do you really believe it happened? Or are we just reading something that is a fanciful story out of some old literature? Is it a fable? Is it Grimm's or Aesop's? Or is it the divine Word of God that's going to judge us in the kingdom? Did this happen? If it did, you are reading the very real response of human individuals just like any couple in this building to the ministerial leadership of the legal successors to Moses as they responded to a great miracle performed by the Son of God. They said, we don't know. We don't know who's opened his eyes. He's old enough. You ask him. He can speak for himself. These words spake his parents, wrote John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, because they feared the Jews. These are people you know, part of your family. And you look here at what is happening in this local congregation over which these people, these Jews, these Pharisees presided, and you see how it affected the minds and the hearts of this family and it's something that comes down to us in very real and very human terms. They feared the Jews. It doesn't say that they had awe and respect and love, but they feared. They were in fear. But you see, the Jews had agreed already. Well, then they had a policy. That policy may have been written. Every one of the Pharisees had agreed already that if any man did confess he was Christ, he was to be, here are the magical words, look at them, two little words that represent a very great amount of fear to thousands of people today. Put out. Those two words convey an immense amount of fear in the minds of many, many people today. Put out of what? Put out of a building. Put out of association with other people. Put out finish it, of the 
Synagogue. Now, to you, you're, you know, you're Americans in the United States of America. Synagogue is a funny-looking building with a dome. A synagogue is a building where hairy old rabbis with a funny little disc-shaped thing on the back of their head, kind of pinned to the sparse hair remaining on the side, is up there speaking in Hebrew. A synagogue is a funny-looking Jewish temple. But you can say the word church if it conveys a more friendly, more meaningful term to you. Because to them it was the church. And the church was everything. The synagogue was everything. Their lives revolved around the synagogue. Why, the synagogue was the most important single building in town. It was where everything happened. It was where their entire social lives were centered. It was where all of the programs for their kids were, you know, carried on, and where everything really basically revolved around the synagogue. Therefore, said his parents, he's of age, ask him. Why? Well, because they were hooked on that life in the synagogue. It was their life. They had no other life apart from it. They were dyed in the wool, as we might say, members of the synagogue. And the idea of being put out of that synagogue meant being put away from friends, family, loved ones. It meant loss of trips, loss of maybe pilgrimages to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. It meant loss of so much, of all the social things, the great Jewish weddings, the great feasts that they had, all of the parties, the things that were so important to them. Therefore, said his parents, he's of age, ask him. Then again, they called the man that was blind and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. They didn't know that at all. That is an utterly blasphemous statement to call Jesus Christ a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Well, at least he, in this entire melee, is dealing with the facts. They said to him again, How did, What did he do? How did he do it? How did he open your eyes? He said, I've told you already, and you didn't hear. Wherefore would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? I love that, because you really wonder if the fellow wasn't getting a little big in there and wasn't uh, being just a little bit sarcastic. Well, that really stung them, and so they resorted to the same carnal technique that a little autocrat, a would-be little Hitler, in an authoritarian position, under the guise of religion, but not sincerely having religion in his heart, because these were religious people, but these were not Christian people. This was a pre-Christian church that sat in Moses' seat, but it would have been called God's church, you see, because they were the legal heirs, the legal successors to Moses, and the Christian church had not yet been established, but the point is, they were religious, but they were carnal. They wore robes, but they were carnal. They reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. And immediately they resorted to saying, We have our credentials. Here is who we are. Young man, you are talking to someone in authority. We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know from whence he is. And the man answered and said unto them, Why, here it is a marvelous thing that you don't know from where he is, and yet he opened my eyes. You guys are supposed to be the spiritual leaders. You're supposed to know about things like this. Now, we know that God does not hear sinners. But if any man be a worshiper of God and doth his will, does his will, him he if he hears. Since the world began, was it not heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind? And here the man begins to wax eloquent. And he, he was beginning to teach his teachers a little bit. He said, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. They answered and said unto him, You were altogether born in sins, and do you teach us? Well, yes, he was teaching them, but they weren't going to receive the teaching. And they cast him out. 
In the margin in my Bible it says, excommunicated him. They excommunicated him for being healed. They excommunicated him for telling the truth. No. No, they didn't. You just think they did. No, they didn't at all. They excommunicated him for a wrong attitude. They excommunicated him for not believing what they said. They excommunicated him for disagreeing with the Pharisees. They excommunicated him for not being willing to bow his head and to just take what they said just exactly like being unsuspicious of a Tylenol capsule because the plastic seal is still in place on the bottle. You don't question the FDC, and you don't question the Pharisees, and you don't question your minister. And they questioned. And he was trying to teach his ministry. He said something of great importance. He gave a biblical principle. He was talking back. And so they excommunicated him for those reasons. Now, we know the truth, but those Pharisees didn't know the truth. They wouldn't have known the truth if the truth had been in the form of a bulldozer or a charging rhinoceros or a Cape buffalo and simply drove over them or knocked them down or gored them half to death. They wouldn't have recognized the truth because they were Pharisees and because they were perverted, hypocritical people. They put him out. Jesus heard about it. And he talked about the Pharisees and said that he had come into the world for judgment. You can complete the chapter, verse 39. And later on said, if you were blind, you should have no sin. And then he gave the analogy, borrowing upon the great miracle of healing a blind man and applying spiritual blindness to the Pharisees and said, you say we see. Your eyes are opened. Therefore, your sin remaineth. Now, Jesus Christ came with a message that is a message of tolerance, of love, and of forgiveness. Let's go to the Sermon on the Mount. That's certainly the place to begin, the very bottom line, the foundational building blocks of all that Jesus Christ taught and of Christianity itself. He began by saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, they that mourn, the meek. He said, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 7 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful. When do you have an opportunity to show mercy? When do you have an opportunity to forgive? He went on and talked about how you are to love even your enemies. But first read verse 21. You've heard it was said of old time, you shall not kill. And whoever will kill will be in danger of the judgment. Murder, of course, is against the law, against Moses' law, God's law, and against man's law. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, believe it or not, the words without a cause, are not found in most of the authoritative manuscripts. These words were added. Maybe there is a cause for which you could be angry, but Jesus said, Be ye angry and sin not, neither let the sun go down on your wrath. But the words are there in some of the modern translations. He that is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment, is the way the original reads. It doesn't talk about causes. It says, Angry with your brother. You're in danger of the judgment. And whoever lets that anger go beyond and comes up with a statement which means you empty or you vain fellow, raka, an untranslated word, shall be in danger of the council, the Sanhedrin. They had the power to put someone to death. But whosoever shall say, you fool, or as the margin says, you graceless wretch. Now, today they would use a lot of very ugly, unprintable words. In other words, the hatred in the heart 
that would cause the mouth to put another human being made in the image of God into the guise of being like an animal, a wretch, just a graceless wretch, is an attitude of heart that would cause a person to be in danger of losing salvation and of being thrown into a lake of fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, if you're going to go to church, you're going to do something religious, you're going to pay your tithes, you're going to say your prayers, you're going to write a letter to a lonely person, you're going to take a gift to someone who was a shut-in, anything you're going to do religiously which would be embodied in the term bring your gift to the altar appear to be doing something religious before God. And there remember, somewhere on this earth, somehow, somebody has something against you. Your brother has anything against you. There's a human conflict in your life. There's a controversy that is bothering your conscience. Leave your gift there at the altar. God won't accept it yet. Just sit it there below the altar. Don't go through the process of offering it because it won't do you any good. Leave it there and go your way. Go back into your life. Don't be there in the presence of God. Don't be there in the temple with your religious gift. Don't pretend that it's going to be meaningful. He said, go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge deliver you to the officer and you be cast into prison. I won't go through all of that, but we need to understand that Jesus Christ said that we must love even our enemies. Let's look at it in verse 44. You've said, verse 43, reading up to it, you've heard it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Now, you people in this room, who, who are your enemies? All the Russians? No. All the Chinese? The Japanese? All Asians? All blacks? All of the yellow races? Uh, everybody that lives on the north side of Tyler? Who are your enemies? People in the world? People you don't know? Catholics? Jews? Who are your enemies? Well, your enemies are people who know you. And maybe that's why they're your enemies. They know you, and the only reason they are your enemies is because they know something about you, or they think they do. They are your enemies because you owe them money, because you said something, or did something, or didn't say something, or didn't do something, or they don't like the way you dress, or the way your skin stretched over your face, or they don't like your look, or they don't like something about you. Or maybe it really was partially your fault. Usually it's partially our fault. Maybe something both of you did that caused an estrangement. No, your enemy is somebody you know, and he knows you. Your enemy is not an anonymous Russian living over in blade of a stalk. He's not your enemy. He can't be your enemy till he knows you, and he hates you. The fact that you have an enemy shows that he is capable of hatred in his heart against you, and he is characterized as your enemy. So he's someone you know and someone who knows you. What does it say is your responsibility? What should be in your heart? What is your attitude toward him? Now, what we're learning here is that in the Christian religion, among Christians, there are never two enemies. There is only one. One enemy. The Christian is not the enemy. The Christian is the one who is holding out the hand of reconciliation. The Christian is the one who is asking, even begging, for forgiveness. The Christian is the one who loves. The Christian is the one who wants tolerance, patience, kindness, and understanding. The Christian wants an opportunity to explain. The Christian wants an opportunity to say, Forgive me, you're my brother. 
The enemy says, I will not speak to you. You may not talk to me. I will have nothing to do with you. You are my enemy. But the hatred must only be in the heart of the enemy. And the hatred must never be in the heart of the Christian. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. If you love them which love you, which people in the church always do, the people in the synagogue love them that love each other. I mean, everybody loves when they're loved in return. They have a tight-knit little fraternity. A family will have that kind of love and that very close bond. If you love them which love you, what reward have you? That's expected of you. You're expected to give love in return for love. Even the publicans do that. And if you salute, speak to, greet, have a certain amount of fellowship with your brethren only, what are you really doing more than anyone else? The Shintoists do that. The Buddhists do that. People of the Church of Satan, the devil in San Francisco do that. The gay community does that. Anybody will salute a friend. What do you more than others? Do not even the public and so? What is he saying? He's saying, show yourself a friend even to those who count you as an enemy. The Christian is never the one who does the shunning. The Christian never gives the cold shoulder. The Christian is always the one who has his arms wide open asking for reconciliation and a demonstration of love. Now the process of excommunication, as we read in the margin, the fact that the blind man was put out of the church, we know the truth, for being healed and for daring to give God the glory and to tell exactly how Christ did it and to try to tell them Christ had to be of God or the work that had been produced could not have occurred. But, of course, they perverted it and thought that he had been out of line and that he had spoken to them uh, in some manner that was absolutely contrary to their authority and it was not taking into account their great prestige, their image, their reputation, their power. And so they put him out for false reasons. You're very familiar with shunning. Let's go to Romans, the 16th chapter. It is done by many, many churches. It's done by the Catholic Church. It's done by the Amish. It's done by the uh, Hutterites. It's done by many other churches, such as the Mormons. It's done by others that I could mention. There are cases that I've heard of in the news in the last few years. It was one sensational case over in eastern Pennsylvania where a young man left the Amish church for some purpose or another, and the church actually said that it didn't exist. His wife and his children were inside the church. He was desperately trying to get to them. He loved his wife and loved his little babies. They would not allow him to get with his wife, and his wife went along with it. She clung tightly to the church, and the man could not get through the barrier of the other individuals in the church, her family, her friends, to even visit and to see his own children. They began to pretend that he never existed. There are cases of shunning, of excommunication, where a member inside a church organization will see someone who has been shunned, or is being shunned, or has been put out, and will look right through the person as if they do not exist. Walk by on the street, narrowly missing brushing shoulders, and just look straight ahead as if they do not exist, and not speak to them at all. It's based upon largely one scripture in the Bible, Romans 16, verse 17. Paul is writing to the Roman church. 
He has mentioned a whole lot of people, Priscilla, Aquila, Mary, Androchinus, Amplius, Urbane, Sacchis, Apelles, Herodias, Tyrena, and Tyrosa, Rufus. He's so many Hermas, Petrobus, and Hermes, Pelogius, Nerus, and Sister Olympus, and all the saints. So this is a very, very personal letter. In the last chapter, he is mentioning a lot of personal individuals, a lot of people that he knew personally in the church. He said, Salute one another with a holy kiss, verse 16. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, point. Again, please remember, this is the word of God. It will judge us in the kingdom. He does not say, I have given instructions to the ministry. He does not say, I am writing to Peter. He does not say, I have given instructions to the elders. He says, I beseech you, brethren. To whom is Paul writing? The brethren. He's just mentioned a whole group of them by name. He's writing to lay members, the laity. He is saying to them, the lay members, I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions. Does this mean the brethren are supposed to stand up wholesale and stamp with a great mark like a black stencil on the shirt of someone or like a black and white ribbed or striped shirt like a referee wears and they also put on prisoners in prison garb? No, 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 no. The word mark, as you will see in any other biblical reference, many of the other New Testament translations, as you will see in a companion Bible, the diaglot, the Expositor's Greek New Testament, any others that show you what the Greek really meant, is take notice of, pay attention to, simply single out consciously. I beseech you, brethren, take notice of those which cause divisions. Now, you've got to go back all the way through the book of Romans to read everything Paul was dealing with. Circumcision, every kind of doubt, everything contrary to faith, every kind of evil thing that he was trying to encourage the Roman people not to get involved in going back into the pagan days of their past, there were people who were catalytic to each one of these problems inside the church at Rome. And so he's saying, notice who some of these people are who are causing all these divisions. Now you see, it uh, gives you a little insight into the New Testament church. There was apparently opportunity for those divisions to be caused. Apparently the ministers weren't such great watchdogs in the first century that the very instant they thought they detected a slight little wrong appearance, even a look on someone's face that meant this person might be thinking wrong thoughts, they didn't put them out or grill them or go to visit them three times in one week and threaten them with excommunication. Apparently in the New Testament church it was somewhat more relaxed than that. So some of these offenses and doctrines had been taught and some people were listening to them. And Paul is saying to the laity, take notice of those causing divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Now, when you avoid them, it simply means you don't invite them over for dinner. You don't accept their invitation. You're not playing softball with them or camping with them or fishing or hunting with them. You're not going to the feast together in the same automobile. You avoid them. For they are such that serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. What is Paul really saying to the Roman church? He is saying these people are not Christians. He's not saying, I beseech you, brethren, note other brethren. He is plainly showing they are such that serve not the Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. These are hypocrites. They are inside the church for all the wrong reasons. They are there for, as social climbers, they are there to make money. They are there to exploit the brethren. 
and to deceive people, because if you'll read in the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, 18th rather, where the Apostle Paul talked about the Ephesian elders, from among yourselves men shall arise, speaking things to lead away a following after themselves. So we see here that the individual member is told to take note of someone who might be causing a disruption of some sort and to avoid them. Now, to see the entirety of the story, let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3.14 and see what Jesus Christ inspired the Apostle Paul to say to the church about someone who was taken in a sin or a fault. Perhaps a weak brother, a member of the church who maybe even has been invited not to come back. Or maybe is being avoided. Maybe he's one of those who has been noted by a brother or has been marked, as we say. That's been completely perverted by some churches. They think to be marked means a public announcement out of the pulpit. Doesn't say that at all in Romans 16:17. That was never to be done. The Apostle Paul does not tell us the names of those people. Even in 1 Corinthians, the first chapter, I'm, not, I'm sorry, the first letter of 1 Corinthians, when he tells us that there was an individual who was guilty of incest inside the congregation, he never gives us his name. History is silent. In the second letter, when he says the individual had repented and ought to be allowed back into the church, we still do not know his name. So the Apostle Paul concealed his identity from us. He says in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3, If any man obey not our word by this letter, this epistle, note that man, the same word. Just notice him. Mark him. Take notice of him. Know who he is. And have no company with him, the same language, that he may be ashamed. Yet, he goes on now to tell you a little more about it, count him not as an enemy. Now, wait a minute. Pause right there. What if you did count him as an enemy? What is your attitude toward him? We just got through reading the 44th verse of Matthew 5. Love your enemies. Even if you were to count him as an enemy, you still love him. You still pray for him. You still have love. In this case, don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, my brother and I had some problems from time to time. We had a very deep problem at one occasion because I had begun to date a young lady that my brother had dated first. She's sitting in this room. has been my wife for 33 years. I don't blame my brother a bit. He thought the world of my wife, surely. She was a young teenager, and he dated her before I did. And he really was quite taken with Shirley, and I think maybe even had some serious intent. He just hadn't gotten around to voicing it quite yet. And I guess I was lucky that he hadn't, because who knows, she might have said yes to him before she had a chance to say yes to me. But there was an upset. Let me tell you, he was angry. He was really angry with me. I counted him as a brother. He was my brother, Dick, Richard David. He was killed in an automobile wreck in 1958. Only about five or six years after this conversation. We went out and I said, Dick, let's go have a beer. You know, sometimes you have a beer and you just sit down and talk. You can relax and let your hair down. I said, I want to talk to you because I know he was upset. And we were getting a little distant, and he was actually a little body English and so on. I could see that he was mad at me. And I told him of what I really felt for Cheryl, and how deeply I was involved, that I was in love with her, and that I planned to marry her. I told him it had nothing to do. I said, Dick, you must not think that I'm just trying to do some one-upmanship here, that I'm trying to come in and kind of steal your girl and trying to show you that I can take her away. We had the nicest long talk, and I just apologized all over the place, but I still didn't say... Dick, go ahead, she's yours, you can have her. I was selfish enough to try to want him to understand that Cheryl reciprocated and that we were thinking of getting married. 
But I'm just merely, it flashes into my mind as I'm telling you this because it says here, if you admonish someone, you do it as a brother. Now, I know it's talking about a brother in the church, but the reason it's using that language, as God is the Heavenly Father and we are brothers and sisters and the church is like an analogy of a large extended family, is because we are to be as close as brothers. When I wanted to heal a situation between myself and my brother, even though he was angry at me, without, you know, with good reason, I should say, with good reason, he misinterpreted my motives. And he was emotionally involved. I loved him so dearly, and I wanted him to understand. And he did. And it completely healed the situation. And he was always very, very loving and warm and friendly toward Cheryl. And very loving toward Mark. And he would come down and take my son for walks and just adored him and sit him on his lap and burp him and babysit him and take him for walks outside the front door of our house. And just couldn't have been a, a greater, there couldn't have been a greater brotherly relationship than Dick and I had in those years. So when I read in the Bible it, it tells me if someone is to be noted and I'm to invite him not to come back to church, what is my attitude toward him? You think about it. You think about the attitude of many people toward someone who is invited not to come back to church. It is, let me tell you, license to hate. Get that in your head and believe it. It's the truth. I believe that when it talks about license in the Bible, we nearly always seem to think that means debauchery, that means sins of the flesh, it means drunkenness, it means pornography, it means all these evil things, these appetites of the human flesh. Licentiousness, license to do evil. The Pharisees gave license to hate. And I believe some ministers do that. I think some churches do it. I think shunning, I think putting someone out, is licensed to hate. And I think that's exactly the way many people who are deceived and think they are Christian are acting toward people who are supposed to be admonished as their brother. And the last thing in the world they feel toward those people is brotherly love. They have contempt, they have hatred, and they have fear. Fear toward those people. And they are given license to have those feelings by the ministry. A ministry that is supposed to be preaching and teaching love and not hatred. In 3 John, the 10th chapter, a uh, 10th verse, I should say, there's only one chapter in the book of John, 3 John, a little note here, and I want you to think about this from the standpoint of the people who originally received it, meaning Gaius, who is also mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. He may have been the same Gaius that the Apostle Paul mentioned, but we don't know that for sure. John wrote Gaius a little note. You know, if Gaius had said to his wife or someone else, Oh, I want you to see the note I got from John about diatrophies. Why would you write a note of this length? It was only, if you typed, typed this on a sheet of paper, you could probably get it on one page. Just a short note. Here is a little piece of personal literature that Almighty God caused to be put into the Bible. And notice the place where it's sandwiched between, in John's writings, between the close of John's writings about love and the beginning of Jude's warning about false prophets right toward the time of the end and then the first three chapters of Revelation which talk about all the problems in the church, that woman Jezebel, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, all of the insidious cancerous teaching of those who were going to engineer the first century apostasy which brought about the emergence of the Roman Catholic Church and completely changed the character and the nature of the visible church in the first century so that historians say it is as if a great curtain 
fell over the church at the close of the first century, and by the third century, when that curtain is lifted, and once again we see the history of those people, and there is no history of an entire lost century of time in the second century, there is not a shred of documented evidence about what the church was doing, how did it fare, who were its leaders, where was it, what was it teaching, what was going on in the church. There's nothing there. But by the time that great curtain is lifted in the early part of the third centuries, century, an entirely different church emerges than the one which had been submerged and blacked out by this drape that fell over history for about 1,000 years. By that time, the apostasy that the Apostle John warned about, that Paul warned about and said that he was restraining it until it become to be, until it arrives in the midst, by that time, it had been complete and the interlopers and the successors to the apostles had come along, had wormed their way inside, and had utterly changed the character of the visible church. Now, think about why John wrote this letter to Gaius. A nice greeting. He hopes that he's going to prosper and be in health. He hears about his kids and mentions that. He mentions his love and charity toward the church. Verse 6. And now he gets to the point. Verse 9. I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, it's very rare when one of God's apostles in the New Testament mentions names. Paul did only once. Alexander the coppersmith did us great evil. He mentioned him to other people afar. But when he wrote to the Roman church about them which caused divisions, even though he might have known who they were, he does not mention their names. But John mentions this man's name. Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them. Then Diotrephes was led by the emotion of vanity, of greed, of a desire for respect and position, a desire for authority, a desire for the ministry. He loves to have the preeminence among them. He wants to be the leader. Receives us, the true apostles, receives us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us. Now, when you prate, you prattle. That means just casual, vicious chit-chat and gossip. It's malicious gossip and slander. He prateth against us with malicious words. Were those words true? Why, no, of course not. What do you suppose he said about John? Do you think, if you're a Christian, you're looking at the Bible, you're looking at one of the great apostles of Almighty God, and you're looking at the closest disciple to Jesus Christ, the one Christ loved, the individual who leaned his head on the bosom of Christ and said, Lord, who is it? He says, the one to whom I will give the sock. The famous picture of the Last Supper. One of the three allowed to be with Jesus on the Mount of the Transfiguration. John, that disciple, unlike any of the other twelve, who wore like a title, that disciple whom Jesus loved. What do you believe about John? Did he have a drinking problem? Did he have a sex problem? Was he a person covetous of money? Did he try to steal church money? Was he a rebel? Was he guilty of watering down doctrine? What do you believe about John if you're a Christian? If you believe this is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit inspired it, then you believe John was a good man. John was a converted, loving, true disciple and later apostle of God. A man of impeccable spiritual character. A man of high quality. A man who was above all that type of thing. But Dr. Peace had an audience. Diotrephes was in control of the local congregation. And he said he preached against us with malicious words. What were those words? John has a drinking problem. Why, I saw him at the feast one time, taking that third glass of wine. Do you suppose 
Could it be true? Would doctrophies have gone so far among the membership as to resort to that? Holy Spirit says malicious. The Holy Spirit says prating against us. And not content therewith, neither does he himself receive the brethren. He not only prevented some people who wanted to enter the church to come in and screen them at the door and wouldn't let them in, but he also forbade some who were members of the church from coming in, and forbiddeth them that would. If you look in the Companion Bible and others, it merely means those who wanted to be members of the church, those who were willing Christians, and casts them out of the church. Wait a minute. What is the church? By one spirit are we baptized into one body. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. I am the vine, you are the branches, says Jesus Christ. The church is Christ's body. It is the spiritual organism that is the body of Jesus Christ in metaphor. And you are attached to Jesus Christ by the power of God's Holy Spirit following baptism and the laying on of hands, and you're in the church. Yet here... The word church is used in the sense of applying to the organization and not the organism. And the proof is in the context because the people who are being cast out of the church are called brethren. Are being cast out of the church, meaning, in this case, not the true church, but the building and the organization which had been captured, which had been plundered, and which was being looted by doctrophies. He cast willing members out, cast them out of the church. Now, what do you suppose happened? Were there those in that particular category who had deep, close, personal friends inside the congregation who sat there? Question, were there those who believed what Dr. Fee said about John? Answer, of course. Believed it with all their being. Would have told other people, I had it straight from the pulpit. It's got to be true. It's the truth. Dr. Fee said it, and he wouldn't lie. And I respect Dr. Fee's. He's a minister of Christ, a minister of God. So there were those who believed it. Thought John was a drunkard, womanizer, whatever they claimed that John was, right? Of course there were. They believed it. Were there those who didn't believe it? Yes. Do you suppose they were friends, these who didn't and these who did? Sure. They'd been friends because they were in the same church. Had they ever been to picnics and parties and the Feast of Tabernacles and maybe whatever they played, probably camel shoes instead of horseshoes. But anyway, had they done anything together in the way we as church brethren do things together? Yes. Do you suppose that there were even family members? Do you suppose somebody's son had married a cute little girl in the church about five years ago and had a couple of kids on their knees? And dad and mom got kicked out and the son and daughter stayed in because she was the daughter of another respected family in the church that always sat in the front row with a great big family Bible, family scroll, while Dr. Fee's preached. And they were Dr. Fee's favorite family. Do you suppose family might have been involved? What do you suppose happened when those who were true Christians, warm, loving, as it says, them who would, those who were instant, who were zealous, who wished to do God's work, who were really converted spiritual people were put out of the church. How do you suppose those who stayed in treated them? Why, they shunned them. They avoided them. They ignored them. They were contemptuous of them. And they hated them. Because, you see, the Christian reaches out. The Christian tries to reconcile. The Christian tries to forgive. The Christian knows that he will not be forgiven unless he himself forgives. He is always looking for an opportunity to forgive, looking for a place to reconcile, looking for an opportunity to show mercy and forgiveness. 
hoping for an opportunity to show tolerance and to show that he is forgiving toward a brother. So Dr. Fee succeeded in dividing the church. Now a bottom line question as I conclude here. What if those who stayed on the outside because Dr. Fee's put them out and they had to continue to be Christian, what if they had stayed in instead because they had believed in the following statement? Let God work it out. No matter what, follow your minister even though you know he's wrong. Just sit there because God's in heaven and we're here and God will work it out. Remain where you are. Stick with the body. Forget about John. We know adotrophies. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's just got a bad attitude, but God will work it out. We'll fight our attitude. Let God work it out. If they had done that and done it perfectly, there would have been only one church on the face of the earth today in the Christian religion, the Catholic Church. There never would have been any other church because if the entirety of the church would have believed in the first century, just let God work it out. We have no personal responsibility. Just sit there no matter what your minister does and let God work it out. There would never have been the true, scattered, persecuted, small flocks that meant the real church of Almighty God. There would have been one church only, the Roman Catholic Church. No, we do not shun. We are to love even our enemies, but especially we are to love our brothers.